the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 2. We'll be considering this morning verses 13 through 15. I want us to read those verses in context, so we'll begin reading in verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, we'll read verses 6 through 15, but the focus of the message will be on verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer together once more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, by your Spirit, please come and please help us. Please open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Please open the eyes of our hearts to behold these wonderful things in your Word. May we approach and obtain something of the glories of the truths contained in these verses this morning. Help us in this. Please do the thing that only you can do and that no man can do, that no incantation or combination of sentences can accomplish. Do what only the Spirit of the living God can do. In the context of this sermon, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The subject of my sermon this morning is the most important message in the world. Nothing in your life is more important than the subject of this text. Now, I know most of the people in this room, but I don't know everyone in this room. I would say I don't have to know you to make that claim. The subject of the three verses verses 13 through 15 of Colossians chapter 2 that we're going to consider for the next 45 minutes is the most important subject in the world. It is more important than your upcoming exam. It's more important than your financial pressures. It's more important than the looming test results. It's more important than the condition of that loved one who is on your mind so often. Nothing in the world is more important than the subject of this passage, and therefore it calls to us, and it summons our most earnest attention. Uh, those who have been with us at Emmanuel for many months or years 
You've heard me speak before of what might be called epitome texts. Epitome text. What is an epitome text? An epitome text is a scriptural passage, a scriptural text, that though it is situated and presented in a particular context, in a chapter, in a book, it sort of stands above its context and is an entire message all of itself and depends not on the surrounding verses in order for its meaning to be illuminated. We have an epitome text in our passage this morning, verses 13 through 15. The words are indeed enriched by the context. Uh, They serve Paul's larger argument in the book of Colossians. But the truths contained in these verses are some of the most fundamental truths in the Christian faith. And we have in very short compass, in very concise form, in very muscular language, some of the most important truths in all of the Christian faith. And that is our lot to uncover and to expound this morning in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. I have two simple headings that will regulate our consideration of these verses this morning. Two simple headings. You were dead, number one, and number two, God made you alive. You were dead, God made you alive. These are truths that are true of everyone here who is a child of God and who has been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And these truths can be true of every single person here after embracing the message that we consider this morning. Consider with me these two headings. Number one, you were dead. And this is simply what Paul says in verse 13, if you'd look at it with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and we'll stop there. He identifies his audience, the Colossian Christians, as those who at one time in their life were dead. Dead in two spheres, in two ways. Dead, first of all, in your trespasses, and then second of all, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let's consider both of those. You were dead in your trespasses. What is meant by that language? I don't know if we use the word trespasses very much. But to speak of our trespasses is to make a reference to our sins. Our trespasses against the law of God, our transgressions against His holy law. It's to speak of our wrongdoing, our falling short of the mark, our failing to uphold His righteous and holy standard. Our trespasses are simply put our sins, our violations of the law of God. This has to do with actual discrete actions, things we do, things we say, things we think, sinful offenses against God's holy law. Now, we see a similar description, and we saw, if you've been with us in this series of sermons through Colossians, we saw a similar description of humanity outside of Christ in Colossians 1, verse 21. If you'll look over on that page in your Bibles there, Paul says, and you, here's how he describes them, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has in mind actual trespasses, actual actions, actual words actual sins and violations of God's law. When Paul speaks of trespasses, he is speaking of actual sinful actions. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses, in this way of living marked by sin and ungodliness. Then he says, secondly, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. That language is maybe less familiar to us. If you were here last week, hopefully it's a lot more familiar to you. Paul is not talking about being physically uncircumcised when he says you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's not promoting Judaism to say, well, now what you really need to do is be physically circumcised. No, this reference is to be placed in juxtaposition 
to the circumcision of Christ made without hands, which we considered last week, by which we put off the body of flesh. We saw this in verse 11. To be dead in the uncircumcision of the flesh means you haven't been regenerated. You haven't been born again. You haven't believed in God. You haven't put off the body of the flesh, put off your sins, put off your fleshly indulgences. You're still living according to the flesh, your sinful appetites and wicked desires. And this is what Paul says was true of them. You were living, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, living according to sinful appetites and sinful desires. So it's dead in trespasses, dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. But it's now that word dead I want to focus on. We've seen what trespasses are, what uncircumcision of the flesh is. What does Paul mean to express when he says you were dead? You were dead in these things. You were dead in your trespasses, dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And I think there are two distinct ideas. I wish to emphasize these two now. Two ideas that are connoted by this word dead. First of all, Paul means that you were dead in the sense that you were condemned. You were dead in the sense that you were condemned. You Colossian Christians... You Christians of Emmanuel Church, you were under wrath, under judgment, and sentenced to eternal death because of your sins and trespasses. You had no spiritual life. You had no appetite for God. You had no signs of a positive interest in Christ and in His gospel. You were dead and sentenced to judgment. You were without God. You were hopeless. You were dead in your sins. And you gave yourself to sins and transgressions which further drove you toward wrath and condemnation. You were dead in the sense that you were condemned to die and condemned to judgment before a just and holy God and condemned to an eternal hell forever. If you'll permit me just to speak a little bit from personal experience here, I can remember quite vividly as a child when I came to the realization that I was dead in the sense that I was condemned. When I became aware that I was under the wrath of God that I was actually, if I did not come to Jesus Christ and embrace the way of salvation that God had made in Him, I can remember very vividly the awareness that I was condemned to suffer an eternity apart from God in hell forever. And I can remember being so afraid and so hopeless. And if I can just say, I wish that some of you would be more afraid. Some of you are content to leave this question of salvation and of repentance and faith in abeyance for a little while. Some of you are content to stay in your situation between two worlds, you're kind of courting the pleasure and approval of the world and your sin over in this corner, and you're open to what Christ might have to say over here, but you haven't chosen to close with Christ and to follow Him and to embrace the salvation that He offers. And you're content to dangle by a thread, as it were, over the pit of hell you are a heartbeat away from meeting your maker. You are a mechanical malfunction in your automobile away from standing before a holy God with your record of sin to come before the bar of His judgment and to face an eternity apart from God. And my plea to you this morning is that you would wake up and that you would see the condition that you're in. I can remember what it was like to be dead. Those of us who are Christians can remember what it was like to be dead, to stand condemned before the wrath of God. The news of this passage is that can change for you as it changed for us. But it's not just that Paul means they're dead in the sense that they're condemned. 
that they were under judgment, that they were under God's wrath. They were dead also in the sense that they were totally and completely unable to save themselves. Dead in the sense that they were dead men, dead women, walking under judgment, under wrath. Dead also in the sense that they possessed no ability to save themselves. Those who are spiritually dead have no ability to choose God, to want Him, to love Him. They are dead in sin, rendering them spiritually and morally impaired. Which means, friends, none of us here in this room are blank slates. None of us are born into this world neutral. Okay, so so the, the condition that we are born into is a condition that naturally, natively hates God, that loves sin. That loves rebellion against our maker. It doesn't choose to follow God. And because we are dead in our sins, natively love our sins, there's nothing we can do about it. We're spiritually and morally unable and impaired to actually come to God. In, in John 3, we read that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What, what is John saying to us? He's saying that we're born with taste buds, naturally, that like the taste of sin and darkness. Men loved darkness rather than light. They were neutral. It wasn't, well, light, you make your best argument, and darkness, you make your best argument, and I'll decide which one I like the most, as if you're choosing items off a menu. No, naturally, we're born into this world with a taste for sin, a love for sin, a native desire to give ourselves to the indulgence of the flesh. We love darkness rather than light. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh, meaning both that we are condemned and consigned to wrath, and we are totally morally and spiritually unable to save ourselves, unable to choose God. We don't want Him. We don't love Him. We don't crave Him. Something has to happen to me if that is going to change. But left in my sin, left in my trespasses, left with my own native desires, I would never want Him. I would never choose Him. As we sang in a song, I think, last week, all I have is Christ. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Those who are spiritually dead have no ability, spiritually or morally, to love God and to choose Him. This is the judgment that has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light. Thus, to ask a person dead in their sin to believe or to choose to repent and follow Christ is like asking a lame person to go on a walk with you, or a deaf person to describe a symphony to you, or a blind person to compare art with you. In each case, it can't be done. In each case, a natural impairment would keep the desired action, the desired activity from taking place. Similarly, calling upon spiritually dead people to turn from their sin and embrace Jesus Christ by faith and to follow Him as disciples is, spiritually speaking, impossible. This is the state of things. Sin has rendered us all morally impaired, totally unable to change. So we see, under this first point, you were dead. What trespasses is a reference to, what the uncircumcision of the flesh is, what it means to be dead in these things, to be condemned and to be morally and spiritually impaired and unable to choose God. Finally, under this first point, let me just say this. This indictment of the Colossian Christians, verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This indictment is not a statement about the unique and unusual sinfulness 
of the Colossians. So it's not like, it's not like I've seen my share of sinful people before, but you all, you all are like dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. No, Paul is acknowledging a universal indictment regarding the nature of humanity. Like this is the world. This is the world we were born into. This is us. When we look at Colossians 2, verse 13, all of us are looking in a mirror. We were born into this world dead in our trespasses and dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. In the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians, because Ephesians and Colossians, you know, were written at probably precisely the same time. There's tremendous overlap between the two books. Paul wrote them from prison in Rome in the early 60s. So in the parallel passage in Ephesians 2, Paul makes this point even further. Paul says there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he elaborates. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you believe the word of the Lord? Is this your view and your understanding of humanity outside of Christ? Do you leave the service today you go over to River Birch Lodge for lunch, waiter, waitress comes to you. One thing I can tell you that is true of that man or that woman is that they were born dead in their trespasses and sins. You gather together maybe at home with your family, your relatives, your aunts and uncles, your mima and your papa. One thing I can tell you about your mima and your papa is that they were born dead in sin. Uh, mothers, fathers, uh, our children, the baby moms that you hold to your breast, the kids that are playing on the floor with the Legos, the son or daughter that just got their driver's license, one thing that is true of them that I can tell you about each one is that they were born dead in sin. This is humanity. This is the state of things outside of Christ. Paul says you were dead. Now, point number two, God made you alive. You were dead. Point number two, God made you alive. Look with me again at verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So, so just to appreciate in these few verses, I said this is an epitome text summing up so much biblical truth and short compass. Just appreciate in this text what we bring to the table. Okay, what, what do we bring to the table in this passage? Sinners like us. In this equation, you were dead. And that's about the sum of our resume. That's what we bring to the table in this relationship. What does God bring to the table in this text? Kids, what does God do in this text? If, if you had to answer that question to go through and enumerate the things that God does in this text, what does He do? We read, God made us alive. God forgives our trespasses. God cancels our record of debt. God nails it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He puts them to open shame. He triumphs over them. In other words, this text bursts with the sovereign, unilateral, all-powerful saving work of God. 
And there's a lesson here in this. We love to say in our church that salvation is all of God. We love to ascribe to God absolute sovereignty in our salvation. And I just ask you, you tell me, are we making this stuff up? What do we bring to the table? We bring our spiritual death. We bring our nothing. We bring our sin. We bring our flesh. We bring nothing to the table. What is it that God does? He does everything. My friends, salvation is all of God or there is no salvation at all. Salvation is entirely and absolutely and totally and completely and sovereignly a work of His hand. It is what He and He alone accomplishes. He alone is the author of salvation. In our redemption, God is the actor. In salvation, God is the sovereign agent. He is the one who is working. What is emphasized is not what we did. It is what God and God alone did. I'll often in the new members class or just sometimes at the door, I might ask folks to tell me how they came to faith in Christ and to tell me, you know, what's your hope of salvation before the Lord? And I understand it's very natural to begin talking about our experiences and what we did. And at this point, I went to this meeting and then I repented of my sins and I walked the aisle and I put my faith in the Lord. And in some ways, that's, of course, appropriate to talk about. If you recognize ultimately, though, that what saves us is entirely what God has done, not what we have done. The emphasis, the accent in salvation is what God has done in making a way of salvation and making provision for everything needed so that we can be saved. Salvation is a work of God. Now let's consider what He's done and what these verses tell us about the work of redemption. First we read, He made us alive together with Him. Him is Jesus. So we'll just say that. He made us alive together with Christ. So somehow... Through the resurrection of Christ, we ourselves were brought to life. We have our life through actually being united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. And again, the parallel passage in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, makes this more explicit. There we read this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, God raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life by uniting us to Christ in His resurrection from the dead. How is it that we have new life? It is through Jesus going to the cross and dying from our, for our sins and rising from the grave, uniting us to Him in His resurrection. So that the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us in raising spiritually dead people like us from the dead to newness of life. But a question emerges, how is it that God can do this? What about those trespasses? What about our deadness and sin? What about our sins and the record of wrong that created alienation between us and God, that created a chasm between a holy and just and righteous God and a sinful rebel like me? What happened, what must happen to address my trespasses and my sins? What is it that God must do to make us alive? And this is what we read in Colossians 2, 14. God made us alive first, having forgiven all our trespasses. He made us alive, how did He do it? By forgiving all of our trespasses. Now it's at this point, if you're looking carefully at the text, I need to make 
a highly technical and nuanced scholarly point concerning the Greek in this passage. The word used here for all in Greek means all. You tracking with me? Shall I repeat it? The word here, translated all, in the original Greek, means all. And so here's what I find so wonderful about this statement. The redemption that God has provided us in Christ covers everything. Covers everything. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. Which disallows the objection, my friend, that God's grace can't save me. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. I have, I have harmed some people in some terrible ways. I have given myself to such perverse things. I have, I have there's, there's no way with the record of wrong that I bring to the table, there's no way that I could be forgiven. I hear this all the time. All the time. Talking to people about the gospel, well, maybe that works for churchy folks. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. I tell you on the basis of the Word of God, He is able to forgive all trespasses, which means that thing, and I hardly need to ask the question, as soon as I talk about that thing, that event, that act of treachery, that act of sin, that act of worldliness and perversion and rebellion against God, that thing that immediately comes to your mind when you think about this subject, that thing can be forgiven. The very worst sin in your record, if we were to trot out the rap sheet and that one that has the asterisk, that big event, that big wrong that is in your mind, He forgives all our trespasses, including that. But not just the top ten, not just the really big things. He includes all those little daily sins that plague our lives, that overwhelm us, every stray thought, every unloving word, every little action of bitterness and rebellion and sin and wrong, every thought of lust, every thought of greed. He forgives it all. All of our trespasses are covered through the redemption that God has supplied, which means for those of you sitting on top of a mountain of baggage or swimming in a sea of regret overwhelmed with shame and the guilt of past sins, on the basis of God's Word, I can tell you Christ has forgiven all our trespasses. No sin can stand against you if you are in Christ. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And there is no sin that could outrun God. There is no wickedness that can overwhelm the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says more, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did He raise us? Well, He forgave all our trespasses and He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The word translated cancel in English literally means to blot out or to wipe away. The basic point is it's gone. Cancel. Blotted out. Done away with. You can imagine a chalkboard. And here's all this writing on there, and here comes the eraser. The chalkboard is just erased completely clean. You can imagine someone who's written in red on a piece of paper. You take white out and just cross over that red ink. I don't know if people use white out anymore. We used that in school when I was a kid. What would white out do? You'd have the ink there, and you take the white out, and you cover it up, and it's like it was never there, right? Just white it out. 
That's kind of the idea behind this language. This would be the Greek word that would be used to describe the effect that whiteout has on red ink. This is the effect of Christ's work of redemption on the cross upon our sins. Our sins are done away with. They're canceled. They're blotted out. What is it that's canceled and wiped away? Paul describes it as this great record of debt that stood against us. Here's the record. Debts we have accrued through our sin and our violations of God's law. And here's this record of debt that stands against us, and it has legal demands. So the sins that we've committed have accrued, in each of our cases, a record of debt. And that debt requires, as a matter of justice, a certain penalty, a certain punishment. It is accrued against us legal demands. And what is the legal demand of our record of death? Excuse me, record of debt. It is judgment and wrath and hell forever and ever. That is the legal demand against us for our record of sin. That's what's standing against us. And what has Jesus done according to this passage? That record of debt that invites the wrath of God, that invites these legal demands, the penalty due to our sins, Jesus has canceled it. He's done away with it. What we have now is a receipt that says paid in full. All my debts paid. All my sins canceled. All of them wiped away. You could think of all kinds of images. You could think of, of I was talking to uh, Ben and Brad this week. We had a meeting I was talking about this passage, and I thought, this is the image for some reason that's in my mind of uh, a hard drive. And you could imagine uploaded to that hard drive every wicked thing I've ever done. And it's as if the Lord takes a bat and slams that hard drive. It's gone. Where's the record? It's gone. It can't be accessed anymore. I can remember very vividly being in a sermon and Pastor Stephen Bird preaching, and he, there was a big projector screen behind the pastor at this church, and he, he stood aside, and he, he looked about the projector screen, and you could look at this projector screen, and he said, imagine what it would be like for all of your sins to be portrayed before us all on this projector screen. Okay, so now, now we're going to watch the video of, of Johnny Harris's life. Then after that, we're going to have Lydia Shindley's life, and then David Ray's life, and one by one, we're going to play the clip of all of our sins and all of our wrongdoing. And he looked at the screen, and he said, but look at that screen. It's just white. There's nothing there. It's like it's all gone. It's like whatever flash drive it had our records of wrong on, and he's thrown them out. He's canceled them. He's wiped them away, which means I am not going to suffer the punishment and the penalty that my sins deserved but rather I'm going to stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God, clean and forgiven, with the record of debt that stood against me with its legal demands canceled. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. We talk about cancel culture, right? Cancel culture. Someone had some odd thing they posted online 15 years ago, and that defines their life. As soon as someone drags up that photo or that tweet or whatever the case may be, or here's this yearbook with this certain picture from years and years ago, canceled, done with. One small act can ruin your life and change everything just like that. That's not what Jesus does with us. Rather, he looks at the mountain of sin and the mountain of regret and sin and sorrow and baggage, and he cancels the sin. He doesn't cancel us. All of us in this room I know we appear externally clean on Sunday mornings and we're all polished and we smile at each other and we hug each other and that's great, okay? All of us, all of us have come into this place 
with all kinds of deeds in our background that make us ashamed. Listen to me. We're all in a sinful mess together. We are all united in our sin. We all have regrets. We're all ashamed of our betrayal against God as sinful rebels. We don't outdo one, each other, outdo, outdo one another with our record of sin and our record of debt. All of us should be in hell right now. And we're not through the grace of God because He has canceled the record of our debt. Some of us here are walking around literally with like a criminal record. And there is a database somewhere that literally records the sinful actions that you have committed. There is a place somewhere where we can access records of the wrongdoing that have been done and they will be there forever on some database somewhere. God does not treat us on those terms. He cancels the record. And on the basis of His grace and His justice, He ensures that that record of debt will never stand against us. It will not be permitted to do so. Those legal demands have been canceled. They have been satisfied through what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's what we read next. This He set aside. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now it becomes clear. This he set aside. What does that mean? That means literally he took this from us. There was something in our midst. He took it out and he threw it away. It's somewhere now where it will never be found again. He cast it out. He removed our sin from us. And what did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. Now that's a really interesting phrase. We could just kind of read over that. But what does that mean? How could it be said that God in Christ nailed our sins to the cross. How did that happen? How can it be said He nailed our record of debt to the cross? How can it be said that our sins and our trespasses have been nailed to the cross? Think about that. Kids, you think about that. We're saying our sins have been nailed to the cross. Does that make sense? I mean, how can that happen? There's only one way it could happen. And that is if a substitute in some way embodies our sins, takes our sins to himself, and he himself is nailed to the cross. It's the only way it could happen. How can it be said that our sins, our record of debt is nailed to the cross? Well, it must mean that our sins in some way have been imputed to Jesus, that they've been placed on him. And so that as the nails are driven into his hands, that's, that's like seeing nails driven into our sin crucifying our sin, putting our sin to death, nailing our sin to the cross. And this is, of course, what the Scriptures say. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. In some sense, brothers and sisters, the sinless Son of God became sin for us, so that in the Lord's punishing of him and pouring out his wrath, full stop, nailing him to the cross, our sins were nailed there with him. Which is what 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Which means when Jesus was nailed to the cross, my sin was nailed to the cross. When Jesus was crucified, my sin was prosecuted. When Jesus died upon the tree, the judgment and penalty I deserved, He received 
in my place. And this is exactly the language, this is exactly the image behind the song that we sing. It is well with my soul. I think we opened the service with it last week. In that song we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That record's gone. It's been nailed to the cross. I don't have the burden. I don't have the record following me around. I'm not dead in my trespasses and sins. I don't have this cloud hanging over me anymore. I'm not under God's wrath. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I've been united to Christ. I'm alive to God. And I have had my sins, all my trespasses, forgiven. And the record of my debt canceled. The language in our text in Colossians 2, 13 and 14 could not be more final. Nothing is allowed to creep in. No sin can be uploaded to our record. We are made right before God in Christ and through his sacrifice. All my trespasses forgiven, all my debts canceled, my sins taken away from me and nailed to the cross. And then finally, verse 15, under this second heading, Paul writes, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I believe Rulers and authorities refers primarily to spiritual rulers and authorities. This is how Paul speaks of rulers and authorities in the book of Ephesians. It appears this is the way he uses that language in the book of Colossians as well. The idea is that through the cross, the spiritual forces of darkness were exposed, and they were vanquished, and they were put to open shame. So you have in the cross the prosecution and punishment of death, of all of our sins, and of Satan and all his forces, conclusively, finally, decisively wrecked and defeated. He triumphed over them in the cross. Well, now in closing, as we consider some points of application before coming to the Lord's table, I want to do something a little unusual. I'm trusting that as I've been sharing from this passage, you can make individual applications concerning your own sin and your own life in terms of what this means for you personally, individually. That there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ and that all your wrongs and sins can be canceled through what He has done on the cross. This is the question I want to ask in application. What would a church culture shaped by the truths of this text look like? Okay, what would a church culture, I'm talking about us together, Emmanuel Church, got a members meeting coming up, we're going to talk about the work of God here in the church and ways we want to grow, what would a church culture shaped by the truths of this text look like? I have 10 things, and don't be discouraged, I'm just going to state them, okay? Number one. We would be full of the deepest kind of joy, gladness, and thanksgiving at all times because our sins are forgiven and we're not going to hell anymore. You know, what do we have in common with each other? I suppose all kinds of things, and then there's things we don't have in common with each other. You meet another Christian today that you've never met in your life, you could say, hey, I'm Alex. I belong in hell. I'm not going to go there 
because Jesus has forgiven my sins and he saved me. Good to meet you, Bob. And Bob says, hey, me too. I belong in hell. I should be punished for my sins. And I'm never going to pay the penalty that was due to my sins because Jesus paid the penalty in my place. It's good to meet you, Alex. Let's go out to lunch and talk about it. I've been a little bit silly, but that's the state of things. All of us belong in hell, and those of us who are in Christ are not going to go there, not because we embarked on some program of personal transformation or because we gave ourselves to some system of religious formalism. We're not going to hell because Jesus died in our place, and that unites us. Number two, we would remind each other always of the gospel, which is the ground of all our hope, all our optimism, all our joy, and our eager expectation of everlasting life. Number three, we would all be humbled by the record of our sins and the abundant grace of God that has canceled it. And this would inform and shape our attitudes toward one another and toward the lost. We would all be humbled, all be humbled by the record of our sins and the abundant grace of God that has canceled it. And this would inform and shape our attitudes toward one another and toward the lost. Number four, no one would feel a sense of entitlement or superiority or pride in the presence of others but all would be governed by a sense of privilege and love and humility because of the astounding mercy of God that has forgiven all of our sins and united us all in Christ. Number five, we would not hold sin against each other because Jesus didn't hold our sins against us, but rather took them to Himself and suffered the punishment our sins deserved we would treat one another the way that Jesus has treated us. Number six, we would be long-suffering, and we would bear with one another's sins and failures knowing that our Savior nailed those same sins and failures to the cross. Number seven, we would abound in forgiveness and grace toward one another in imitation of our Savior. Number eight, we would sing about these things loudly. Number nine, all of our sorrows and our trials would be put in proper perspective. Our present sufferings would be regulated by the knowledge that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You must know this. God is good to us not because of any material prosperity He gives us. God is good to us because He has forgiven our sins. And that covers each one of us who are in Christ. Number 10, moved by the overwhelming grace of God in Christ, we would be more zealous for holiness and Christ-likeness and more zealous for the spread of such a glorious gospel among lost and needy sinners. Last word is to those here who are outside of Christ. You're here and you're not a Christian. This is the truth for you from this passage. Your sins have created a record of debt, and that record of debt has legal demands upon you. There is a warrant out for you. Your sins have created legal demands against you. 
Those legal demands are death and judgment and hell forever. This part of the message is not my pleasure to convey, but I don't want it to be true that you could grow up and go on throughout the years and the generations of this church and get before the Lord on the last day and say, I was never warned. I warn you, according to God's Word, you are accruing a record of debt by your sin, and it has legal demands upon you. And so I just ask you, I leave you with this question, wouldn't it be just wonderful if that debt could be canceled and all that sin forgiven? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truths of the gospel, the greatest message ever told, that sinners can be forgiven and have all their debts canceled, all their trespasses wiped away. We pray that you would renew in each one of us confidence and great hope in the grace of God, that you would convince us again of the gospel by which we can be saved and changed and forgiven. And Father, we pray also that we as individuals and as a church would be in every way shaped by these realities, that we would see ourselves increasingly as those who have been dead in sin but have been made alive surely and purely and totally through what our Savior has done. We pray that His work would loom large in our minds. We pray that it would control and regulate our lives, that it would be ever in our minds and on our lips and in our hearts. We pray that for those who have felt afraid of judgment, have felt hopeless in the face of the great debts that they owe, that you would awaken within them great hope that their sins can be forgiven and that all the bad and the wrong they've done can be wiped away through what Jesus has done on the cross. May we leave this place full of optimism about the mercy of God in Christ with a confidence and an assurance that we can be made partakers of forgiveness through what our Savior has done. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.